scripture for this morning is Luke 15, 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region, and there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father, and while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The slave replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, For all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, your word is like a seed and our hearts are like soil. Only you know the condition of that soil. But we're asking you to prepare it. Till it, water it, whatever you need to do so that we can receive the seed of your word so that it can germinate in us, grow and bear fruit for our lives, those of our neighbors, for the whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Last week we talked about the prodigal son. We're going to talk about it again. I probably have at least one more in me, um, so we're probably going to talk about it one more time after this. this particular sermon, I want to focus on the older brother. He is uh, notorious um, for being overlooked. 
even the title, as I talked about last week. This is a prodigal about two lost sons, not one, but we call it the prodigal son. And um, the truth is the, pro the, the older son uh, might be even more lost than the younger son. He's probably in a worse situation. And in fact, um, Jesus ends the parable not even talking about a repentance for the older brother. Um, we get one for the younger brother, but not for the older brother. And so we should be more concerned about him. And frankly, I think most people identify with him more at least than the younger brother. So we need to talk about him. But I want to start by just identifying some similarities between the two brothers. We separate them out a lot, but there's a lot that they have in common. Um, and one of the things, one of the most obvious things they have in common is that both are far away from the father. Both are far away. So um, there's even the same words used. Uh, the younger son is out and has been sent to the fields to work after he's left to the far country. And the older son is out in the fields also working. It's the same word. They're both far away from the father. And, and this should be strange to us because, because the father represents joy. The father represents party. The father represents celebration. The father represents a really, really good time. And so it is strange that both of the sons are far away. Why are they so far from joy? Why are, they, why are they distant from love? Why don't they want to draw near to it? It's almost a paradox. I think that we maybe could recognize something of this. Um, you know, people are, uh, will often say, you know, I, I have a lot of good things in my life. Why am I not happy? I have a lot of good things going for me. Um, I live in the most powerful country, powerful country in the world of all time, the wealthiest country of the world of all time, and I still struggle to be happy. In the parable, we see um, three things, three, three reasons they're far away from the Father and the Father's love. There's diversion or, or distraction. Uh, that's the younger son. There's despair, also the younger son. And then there's diligence. Diligence. The older son is far away because he's working really hard. Working really hard. Um, why would we flee joy? I'm going to explore that a little bit, but thankfully we're not uh, the only ones to have asked this question. In fact, this question has been asked through generations and, and centuries, really. Um, why is it that we flee the thing we long for most? Why is it we refuse what we most desperately need of all things? Why do we do this? Um, there's a peculiar name that was given to this uh, about 1,600 years ago when the, the monks in the desert were experiencing it, and that name is Asidia. Um, I like that word because we, we, there's a lot of other names that have been given to it. One of the other names is sloth, but I think sloth is, um, is a little bit of a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. Um, but it's also even been called depression. Um, Andrew Solomon has a, a famous book on depression that he calls the noonday devil. It's an atlas 
of depression. And the reason he calls it Noonday Devil is he's going all the way back to those desert monks. And, and he's, he's identifying that they were identifying very, very early on, way, way back then, the signs of depression. Um, they noticed a certain tendency of the monks uh, around noonday, when it was hottest, and they're, remember they're in the desert, and the time of the most, when, when they were most still, there was no shadows or anything like that, time seemed to stand still, when they just could not stay in their cell. And they would either revert to some kind of despondency or depression or distraction and diversion. In fact, some of them would go towards mercy, acts of mercy. They would go and be do-gooders just to get out of that situation of having to stay put in their cell at noonday. It was terrifying for them. Um, Andrew Solomon is not suggesting that we are only talking about um, depression when we talk about acedia. And I'm not either. I'm not, um, I'm not preaching a sermon only on depression. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the church's approach to this condition. And there is obvious overlap with depression. In fact, there's also overlap with ADD. I was reading a, um, a, a monk, a, an abbot of a monastery, and he's writing about acedia, and he, does, he makes a list of the conditions of acedia, and it looks almost word for word like a list of people who have ADD like a, the condition of AD. Um, so there is definitely overlap, and I'm, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to ignore or hide that, but I do want you to know that there's, there's a whole other conversation to be had by experts in um, psychological disorders and that kind of thing. That's not a conversation I'm going to have. I'm going to be talking about the theological dimension of this. Um, and the way I'm going to do it, the way I'm going to talk about this deep sort of complex theological point is I'm going to talk about the movie Groundhog Day, which makes sense, right? I mean, how else would you talk about this, right? Um, I, uh, there are a lot of ways. I, I was looking for another parable. I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of a parable. Why did Jesus tell so many parables? Um, something about parables capture the imagination, and I thought, is there a modern way to capture our imaginations? And really, there is. There's quite a bit of writing that includes this. I could recommend... Um, J.F. Powers, the novelist, his, his short story, Prince of Darkness, um, the very thick trilogy I read when I had COVID in the fall called Sword of Honor by Evelyn Waugh. These, these are all explanations or explorations of Acedia, but I don't think you want to hear, I think you want to hear about Groundhog Day. And I mean, I want to talk about Groundhog Day. So we're going to talk about Groundhog Day. Um, I, you may not have seen it. I, I, I recognize that, um, and hopefully you have, but if you haven't, uh, you may have even picked up the general plot from culture, right? So this guy named Phil, total jerk, he's a weatherman, and he's just a jerk, and he gets stuck in a time loop, <laughs> meaning uh, every day is the same day. No matter what he does during the day, he wakes up, and it's the exact same day over and over and over again. We don't know how many, how many days he repeats oh, yeah. in the movie. It could be thousands. We, we don't know. Um, uh, he, he, uh, he gets stuck in a time loop and it's in, it's in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, which, which I know is a horrible, horrible place. Because I was born in Dubois, Pennsylvania, and Dubois, Pennsylvania is right next door to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and they were our rivals. And according to my dad, they're just the worst people ever. They're awful, awful humans. Um, 
Anyway, so of all places to get stuck, Punxsutawney is a horrible place to get stuck. But he is stuck. Phil is stuck. And, and um, Phil is a lot like the older brother in the parable um, when the movie starts. Because Phil is all about work. He's all about diligence. He's all about advancing his career. In fact, he wants to stay as little time as possible in Punxsutawney because he wants to get back for the 5 o'clock news in Pittsburgh. And so, so that's, that's how he begins. But the, but the time loop forces him to stay in Punxsutawney, to stay put. It's like a curse. It's very much like those monks who had to stay put in the middle of the day when time stood still. They thought that, that they would never get out. So how does he deal with it? Uh, the first thing he does, again, just like the monks, is diversion. He diverts himself from his situation. He says, well, wait a second, I, I, could, I could have fun. I could have fun. So he, he, he orchestrates um, a major theft, uh, steals a bunch of money. Um, he starts um, seducing women. He, he starts doing terrible things, all in the name of just having a blast and diverting himself from this horror, really, it's a horror, of, of having to repeat the same day over and over again. Um, this ends up being not that satisfying. That's not a new piece of information, that's old wisdom, that if you just constantly divert yourself, you just need more and more and more. And so finally, he, 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 he sets his sights on Rita, who's his producer, who's deeply good. And, and Rita, he says, um, he said, okay, I'm gonna win over Rita. And the way he's gonna win her over is he learns everything about her and he deceives her into thinking he is a perfect person, the ideal man, the, the guy that she would, she would fall for instantly. And so he, he spends multiple days learning what poetry she likes and then he memorizes the poetry, on and on and on, it's all a ruse. Um, and so finally, when he, when he on one of the days when he unleashes all of all of what he's learned to try to get her to fall in love with him, um, she slaps him in the face and says, "You don't really love me," and he replies, "Well, I don't really love myself." And then this is what introduces the second phase of Phil's uh, predicament. He goes from diversion to despair. The movie actually becomes quite dark, even though it's still comic. Uh, becomes really dark at this point. Um, he, he actually commits suicide repeatedly. And that is an extremely serious topic. And it's not even something I would just bring up um, willy-nilly, flippantly, or anything, if not for the fact that there's kind of a poignant um, thought here, which is um, studies and, and surveys and interviews have told us that, that people who attempt suicide and are not successful Almost, almost always will say, I'm so glad I wasn't successful. And there's this strange grace in that um, Phil is not able to, to finish off his life, that he is, that he is forced to co go on living because he will come through. He will come through. So there's this really amazing kind of message of hope in the middle of this absurd film about despair that... Um, that ending it is not the answer, um, and that there is another answer. And so, so he goes through this, this dark period of despair. He's, he's watching Jeopardy, drinking vodka, doing, doing it's really quite sad. And then, and then he finally gets to the point where he invites Rita into what he's going through. Spends some time kind of convincing her what's going on. 
Um, and finally, she believes him. And she, to her great credit, she's willing to come into this day with him. This, this, this particular kind of suffering. And she, she says, I'm going to spend it with you. I'm going to do this. And, and honestly, I think this is the most, the most powerful point of the movie is when Rita decides to do this. And it's a real turning point because what she does is she convinces him that this endless cycle of the time loop of having lived the day over and over again, it may not be a hell, it might actually be a gift. It might actually be a gift. And why, have, why, don't, you, why don't you treat it like a gift? And so that's Phil's turning point. He treats it like a gift. He realizes, wait a second, now I can use this to learn how to love people. And so he does. He, he finds out all the terrible things that happen in town, and he, and he figures out how to fix them. And it takes him a long time. He earns a medical degree. He learns how to play the piano. Um, and so every day, you know, he runs to the kid who falls from the tree, and he catches him, um, and he sets his watch by it. He does marriage counseling. Um, now, he doesn't save everybody. There's an old man in the film who dies, and he just dies, and Phil can't save him. So he doesn't become like a superhero. You know, he just, he just, he's a normal guy, but he learns how to help people. He rescues the mayor, chokes on steak, played by his brother in real, you know, it's actually his, Bill Murray's brother. Um, and he rescues him and, and uh, does the Heimlich maneuver. He does all these things and he, and he decides to live a life of love. And what he realizes is that he doesn't even care anymore about the time loop. It doesn't matter because he's living in love. And by living in love, um, the time loop no longer matters to him. And that's precisely when it breaks. Interestingly, after it breaks, he and Rita, of course, get together because it's a Hollywood movie. And um, in the very end of the movie, he says, we should move to Punxsutawney, <laughs> which is maybe the most astounding part of the thing, because like I said before, Punxsutawney is just about the worst place you could ever live. <laughs> you should see their football team. Absolutely awful. <laughs> All right. Um, Spent a lot of time talking about Groundhog Day, but I promise it's, it, is, it is worth it. Um, uh, as I said earlier, I see and feel a resemblance to those desert monks who were forced to stay put, forced to stay in one place at noonday. Um, during noonday, there are no shadows that are visible. You can't, you can't see them nor can you see God's love. But by staying put, by persevering, the monks could learn to become the kind of people capable of receiving and giving God's love. Walking into the joy of the Lord. Um, we are not so lucky to have a time loop. We are not so lucky to force to sit in one place. In fact, we have uh, sort of structured our lives around diversion and distraction, they're now um, really celebrated. This is, this is why I don't like the word sloth, because you can be just as guilty of acedia as an extremely hard worker as you can be of a lazy person. Both are ways of getting away from the joy and the love of God. We despair because we are not made for endless diversion, nor are we made for the diligence of a slave. We are made for greatness in loving and receiving love. We are made with an extraordinary capacity for love that extends beyond time and into eternity. We can take every individual moment and make it an eternal moment when we love and truly love. <clears throat> 
But becoming that kind of person who is capable of love, it can feel like it's only possible by giving up our lives. It can feel like we would only become a kind of person who's capable of love if, if we give up our desires, if we give up our plans, if we give up our ideas of the kinds of lives that we wish to leave. We would have to lose our lives in order to find them. And so this is why I think it is crucial to see in our parable, the parable of the two lost sons, the father coming out to the field, coming out to greet the younger son. The father is, is coming out to join them in their pain. Remember, I talked about this last week, neither of them fully repent, not even the younger son. His repentance is to become a hired slave, not to become a true son. Both of them need the father to come out to them just as Phil needed Rita to spend the day with him in his pain and suffering. The monks would counsel in the face of Asidia, they would counsel perseverance, but only in order to see that God enters time to be with us in all the humiliation, all the struggle, all the pain of what it really means to love others in this world. As the the theologian Herbert McCabe says, we either die from lack of love, or if we love, they will kill us. Christ comes into our human condition. He comes in the incarnation and saves us from the consequences of our turning away, of our refusal of joy. The cross that we are asked to bear has already been born. The life we are called to lose is the life he died in order to save. And so it is precisely at that point, it's precisely at noon day, when we are most besieged by sorrow, by sadness, by confusion, that we are going to be nearest to God. Because God's glory is most fully revealed in the moment when Jesus was suffering, when he was trapped and couldn't move, when he was lost, when he was alone, it was precisely on the cross that God's glory is most fully revealed. If God has brought the worst of our condition into his life, then we have no reason to flee. And we are free to receive the love and the joy that is what makes up God's life. It is ever before us in the face of the Father who is always with us, with us forever. Amen. Oh Lord, we praise you that you are not far off. You have come to us. Lord, help us to see your face. Help us to hear your voice. And Lord, may we never, ever turn away from your love and your joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.